Welcome to Family Movie Nightmare. Hello again, this is Family Movie Nightmare, the podcast where a father and his spawn discuss all forms of horror media. I'm Nikki Kay, the spawn in the equation. And I'm Timothy Harvey, their father. And today we are back finishing our um, our run through of Channel Zero with its season four entry, The Dream Door. And I am so happy to say it is a return to force. It is nothing like, I was going to say it's nothing like Butcher's Block, but there are a lot of pieces from Butcher's Block that I feel they they looked at and were like, there is a kernel of something useful in here. And they uh, reapplied it with this season. The most obvious being the contortionist character coming back and being reborn as the absolutely terrifying, for most of it, Pretzel Jack. Yeah, what's interesting for me looking at this is that, again, it really seems like if you start off with one of the actual creepypastas or... Even leaving aside, you know, the idea of the creepypasta in general, the mm-hmm. the core story, it starts off with the original source material and then expands upon it and builds a world out of something that somebody else developed. Right. I'm sure the writers of the show are all very, very talented, but three out of four seasons have actually adapted, you know, mm-hmm. existing material. And while they may go off and really distinct directions adapting that material yes the the one season that felt off uh, most of all was the one that didn't adapt that material just adapted a single scene from an existing story so right the the what ends up happening here i think mostly is a successful expansion of yes. that very, very brief story that uh, serves as the source material. There's just not a whole lot to The Hidden Door. No, it's a very short vignette um, written by Charlotte Bywater, and uh, it only hits about, I guess it would be 15 to 20 minutes within episode one. It is a short story about a... Um, well, if you're following the Twitter, then you know that the version that I listened to was performed by a woman. And so I was imagining a lesbian couple moving into a house and finding this door in their basement that would logically lead into their neighbor's adjoining basement and inside being a creepy motherfucker who... um gets out gets loose and that is taken more or less beat for beat including the journey over to the neighbor's house to try to figure out if um their their properties are connected um it it's all translated into the first episode which is honestly like jam-packed when i went back and um started doing uh prep for recording this episode, I had to, uh, I had accidentally believed that a portion of episode one was actually part of episode two because so much shit happens. 
Oh yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of story beats in episode one, and I think it allows this season to spend as much time as it does getting through all of the shit that it establishes within the first three episodes. So the so episodes four through six can be stuff that the audience isn't necessarily prepared for. There's some really interesting writing here and how they um, hinted plot points and then completely redirect. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into the uh, act three twist. Um, but when it comes to episode one and the hidden door, um, the, the creepypasta that they're kind of, their grounding is in, that all is tied into, um, a reoccurring character called Pretzel Jack, which as a, even just his name that they came up for this character, Pretzel Jack is such a kind of cutesy, like, you can see a kid making up this, this creature and yet the second that I heard maybe it was because I I was watching a horror franchise but the second I heard the words pretzel jack I was like oh fuck shit I don't want to see this character please don't show me this character oh my fucking god what why why is he named that why is it gonna be like that man it's so evocative (laughs) Well, and when you consider the fact that that Pretzel Jack really is one of the most uh, visually impressive, there's a lot of there's a lot of visual effects in this season, mm. and uh, but Pretzel Jack, who is very much a practical effect because it's a guy in yeah. a costume, yeah. uh, is is actually one of the most effective visual effects the show has, and in in contrast to some of the other. Uh, creations of the mind, spoiler alert for the whole concept of the show. Uh, <laughs> he's actually, st- of all of them, he's the most visually impressive and the most complete. Uh, I think in, in many ways the most complete as a character for something that isn't actually a character. Yeah. Not really. Com- comparing it to the other seasons, he's the, he, besides perhaps... Um, the father from No End House, he is the most, um, personified monster because the, the dad from No End House is, you know, in and of himself, he's not a person. He's, he's also a, 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 a mind entity, but he is a mind entity that believes himself to be a person. Well, but he also, he's also a, I mean, he has, he's a character who has agency of its own. It's right. not just operating at, on the directions of another. I mean, it starts off to some degree like that. He is in some ways an extension of the house. A right, and Margot. But he's also got, he also develops with his own sense of self, but also his own ability to make choices that ultimately drive the story. Right, whereas Pretzel Jack is a product of of a mind, um, a, a powerful mind, um, and is subject to those that mind's whims, and seems more or less entirely cool with that. Um, he doesn't have enough agency to to fight, or or any will to. Uh, but going back on like the practical effects, the um, the makeup that they give Pretzel Jack is 
so it it does such heavy lifting uh when it comes to the visual storytelling because it it just works on so many different levels you have the you have the clown um aesthetic you have um portions of the face prosthesis that has turned this black actor into such a close rendition to the character's actual father, Jillian's father, that I literally did not know that they were not the same actor until I looked it up. I mm. was con- I had convinced myself that the contortionist that plays Pretzel Jack was the same dude that played her father, and I thought that was clever. And then I realized, oh God. no, I had just, I had just in my head drawn such a strong comparison and thought, oh, it wouldn't, wouldn't it be cool if they had done this, that I was convinced of it until IMDb was like, no. But (laughs) it would be really amazing. It would be really amazing if Greg Henry could actually do all that contortion because Greg Henry was like born in like 1952. Yeah. It's probably... I didn't know that that actor was proficient enough to be like recognizable. Oh yeah, no, no Greg that's Henry, extra Greg, silly. <laughs> yeah, so so Greg Henry is an amazing character actor, and he's been in like a million movies. And I was really one of the one of the surprises of the season for me was how little he was oh, in God. the series. Because yeah. if you think how how many moments the father, who is in many ways the catalyst for so much that happens in this show, he gets is, like a scene and a half. Yeah, it's like a day shoot. And, uh, which is cool. I mean, it's great to have him there because he, he brings with him for clearly not necessarily for you, but for, for some of us who are more familiar with his work or are used, more used to seeing him, um, he brings a certain, uh, uh, there's a certain weight to having these kind of characters show up. There's the, the casting of secondary characters on this show has been very, very strong. So you had Rutger Hauer last season, and you had the really fantastic casts of the first and second season. You have these secondary characters who show up either briefly or only in for a couple of episodes, like Steven Weber in mm-hmm. this season. You know, these are really, really solid character actors and sometimes leads and other things who have yeah. been, you know, producing fantastic work careers of, of work and to have them in here brings a certain weight to it on the other hand it's a blink and you miss it cameo really i mean he's just yes. there I, i'm not sure that he he was used quite effectively either i uh, th- another reason that i believed that pretzel jack and dad were the same person was because the actor felt like kind of not good <laughs> Like kind of a flat, kind of flat without, you know, the makeup on him or the more um, uh, over the top ac- antics. I, I, I built up this entire narrative in my head, Tim. I'm not even fucking kidding. <laughs> I had all these, I had, I had built up this conspiracy wall of reasons why this was the same person. <laughs> well, that's great though. That's great though. But it, it's, it's for a character who does have the impact overall on two specific characters and then consequently everybody around them mm-hmm. it's that was one of the weak weaker parts of the season for me which you know having the this character who does have this impact and who yet is only briefly there for the audience it's a long shadow he casts 
that we don't get quite. I would I would have liked to. It, I mean, it works. I think it works. Mm-hmm. But I would have liked to have more of it because yes. because the dynamic between what ultimately proves to be two sibling half siblings and their father drives so much of the story. And there's so many questions that the audience uh, are are encouraged to ask themselves about about uh, Jillian and Ian's father. Spoilers uh, that we don't get the answers to because he's he's we don't get to meet the guy until episode three and episode end of episode three, I believe. No, I'm sorry, end of episode four. And he's just fucking gone. Like, we don't, we don't get to make, we don't get to come to our own conclusions about him. Because uh, he's blinker, you miss it. We can only go off of what Jillian and Ian's impressions of him are. Which, to some degree, is fair in terms mm-hmm. of storytelling. Because, ultimately, the truth of who he is, and he doesn't, he comes across to some degree, as a fairly shallow person. The whole concept of the character, a man who has two families, a man who is, you know, basically living a double life and then abandons one family to be with the other and and having this sort of... And then clearly not a great father to his son. Uh, So it's... There's a certain... I mean, there's a shortcut that you can pick up just by what they they say about him and then when you meet him, he comes across as a fairly shallow person. Not... But 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 it's a, again it's so brief that you're going that may not be true but to some degree it doesn't matter because it doesn't change the outcome yeah it doesn't yeah, change it... where it has led Ian and and Jillian no matter what these characters you know the choices that they end up taking as as their own autonomous people are still all tied up into the choices he ended up making. Right, but what but what I missed out from this season that we got from especially the first and second season was how much choices that parents make can come back and and you know be either extremely critical uh, or come back and haunt them or be things that redeem them. Um, he's so briefly there that I felt almost like I, we especially with the strengths of the first and the second season, I kind of wanted to have him have more of a moment where we got to know, is he just a flawed, you know, obviously he's a flawed person, but is he just a flawed person or is there something more to him? Was there, is there a chance of redemption? And so now we don't, we don't, we don't get any of that. So yeah. and that's, and that's okay. Yeah. But... I, I think it, it's the core of it being more of a romance story than it is a larger family story. Yeah. Because so much of the previous seasons were about feminal bonds. And this one is specifically about the conflicts within a romantic bond, especially when one of those people has trust issues. <laughs> All of it. So much of, yeah. of the motivation and conflict comes from, I can't trust you. I can't trust anybody. And I know you don't trust me. And... It doesn't seem to matter what I do. You will never trust me. And it... That's another theme that kind of ends up falling to the wayside by the time we get to episode four. Because the conversation by that point has... Things have shifted so dramatically away from a 
supernatural entity is fucking up a real life situation, it shifts to, and now we go to Hogwarts, you're a wizard, Harry. And I'm not, I don't mind that because I really personally enjoy having a character who has lived their entire life in mundane, uh, in, in mundane, I personally like seeing a character who has only known the mundane thrust into the, into a completely new reality where they have far more control than anyone they have ever met could possibly understand. And I, I really enjoyed some of my favorite character moments were the people around Jillian going, but that doesn't make sense. That's not how anything works. <laughs> I know you want me to play in this space with you, but I'm not going to join you in crazy town. I'm going to try to bring you back. And it like, but at the same time, it did detract from the conversations that the audience can actually um, see themselves in. We we mm. met, we went from having these fucking amazing monologues from um, Brandon Scott, the actor that plays Tom. He was the police officer in. Uh, butcher's block and whoever in the casting with with casting decisions was like we're bringing that fucker back and we're making him the love interest i just want to send them flowers and thank them for giving this guy more time on my screen because he's so good and i really really loved his performance but as he has i recall he is and, and I, I may be wrong but i, I believe i read the, an article saying that they didn't actually. They, they really enjoyed working with him, but they didn't actually plan on bringing him back. He just came in and auditioned again. Oh and they were my like, goodness! Oh well, okay. So, and I could be wrong about that. That, that, that that's a memory. That's not. Well, I don't have the article fuck in front yeah, of me. Yeah, Brandon, you were you <laughs> called it, man. You needed this role, this fucking role. You fucking killed it. But he has this monologue about trust, and it is gut wrenching. And it's one of the highlights of the series when it comes to character moments outside of outside of the supernatural horror. And those kinds of conversations stop happening because by the end of episode five and six, Jillian has to face that her trust has been broken by yet another person. And we don't... It's gone so far that she doesn't... It stops being about, I trusted you and... You betrayed me with an act of human, um, human neglect to your supernaturally powerful, uh, crazy person. And it doesn't matter how much logic I throw at you about how you hurt my feelings because you're nuts. And <laughs> I, I, again, I understand it, but it's along the same lines of, of the, the weaknesses and strengths that one has to play with when, when trying to tell a story that is doing so many different things it's not nearly as as haphazard as butcher's block was but there's definitely a shift of we really like these we we really like these concepts but we also want to play over here in in harry potter uh learn to be power learn to do magic land and (laughs) i i don't know if it really as a as a a whole cohesive story benefits mm. it's 
especially when it comes to the horror department. Um, because going back to Pretzel Jack, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm completely, <laughs> but yeah, just Pretzel Jack as a character, his transformation over the course of the season goes from shit your pants scary to, uh, how did I compare it to? Loyal puppy to, dog? Uh, little puppy, to choose your own fighter in a, in, oh, yeah. in a Mortal Kombat yeah. game <laughs> complete with fatalities. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a good way to describe it. I just, I I really felt that this season starts off very much uh, creepy and very strong in horror, mm-hmm. and especially the end of the first episode. Where <laughs> yeah. It's I mean it's very it's sudden. I'm I'm a big in horror. I'm a big fan of sudden brutality, which sounds like a terrible thing to say, uh, <laughs> and makes me sound just crazy because that's always <laughs> bad. But it but in terms of in terms of the the. The idea of what personally is is disturbing to me is not telegraphed violence, uh, but the sudden violence that you can't control, that you can't foresee, and it you becomes can't prepare for. That, right, and that's the kind of thing that actually makes me jump. And as you were tweeting your responses to this and talking about jump scares, oh, uh, the idea of the jump scare is so overused, and it's become a joke. Because mm-hmm. jump scares have become such a telegraphed thing where the music swells and suddenly there's a jump scare. And it's like, well, yeah, of course there's one because the music just swelled. We all know this thing. It's, a, it's, it's become a very funny thing. Mm-hmm. But jump scares are a viable, real, effective way of shocking an audience. And yeah. if you've earned that jump scare, if you've given the audience the ability, you know, you, if you've had something shocking happens suddenly that's effective and that's that's justifiable but yeah. so much of it is is oh oh here comes the jump scare oh wow oh, 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 okay and yeah <clears throat> but and it's, here it's yeah go ahead i was gonna say but here the moments of violence especially in the first episode are so brutal and so quick and handled so well that if I, on one hand, I don't know you could have sustained that level mm-hmm. throughout all six episodes I, because some of it comes out of the fact that it's the first time you see it happen. Yeah. Uh, but that said, it's very, very strong at the beginning of this series. And by the end of the season, it's, you know, you expect Ken Watanabe to show up and go, let them fight. And, <laughs> you know, hear the Godzilla roar. I mean, it's kind of that kind of... <laughs> it's that kind of ending. <laughs> yeah. And there's some other things that other choices in framing and and uh most importantly lighting in the uh-huh. last cup last episode that I want to touch on but while we're talking about the first episode. Oh my god. Uh, I uh I thought a lot about this because I uh because I enjoy horror and would one day like to craft a horror story like specifically meant to to terrorize somebody um and the and the way that they agree to that all horror fanatics in, in inevitably agree to be scared um there were so many choices to the first episode that either reminded me of things that were 
absolutely terrifying in the past. Um, or legitimately scare the shit out of me here in the present. I, I had to face that there are, there are some things that will perhaps always get to me. Things that, that I just personally am very, uh, sensitive to in the sense that when I seize it, I have a vis- a, a visceral reaction that I can't, I can't control. And dude in a fucking dark ass room with his back turned to you and then he turns around and his face is all fucked up and he runs at you (laughs) i covered i screamed and i covered my face when when pretzel jack ran at jill and i can't i mean it i couldn't control it and um because it was just it it was effective for me. The fact that it mm-hmm. went from a completely dark room to someone with his face turned away in bright colors, just bright red shirt, mm-hmm. bright white back of the head. And then he turns around and it moves so fast and so shambly towards you. And the makeup of the face, like I said, carries carried a lot of... Ha- had to be effective in this moment. It had to register to the eye as either a wound or blood from another victim. I didn't know what the fuck I was looking at, and it scared me because I didn't know what I was looking at. He was moving so fast, and the shot was so quick that my brain made a snap judgment and it came, and it decided it was something that I was not going to see anymore and it told my hand to cover my face. That is effective goddamn use of your makeup artists. <laughs> oh yeah, especially especially when you look at how the first episode is shot and timed. There's a whole lot of wide shots and letting mm-hmm. the camera sit which is something that one of the most effective horror films, uh, a lot of people agree, I'm not alone in this, is the original Halloween by John Carpenter. Mm. And this film set... It it did a lot of good things and bad things for horror because it's inspired an infinite number of knockoffs. Um, some of them were very successful. The Friday Thirteenth films were direct ripoffs of Halloween, but they became their own successful thing. There were a bunch of other very, very pale imitations. But one of the things that Carpenter did really, really well, and they do very, very well here, is they let the camera just sit there, mm-hmm. and they sit there in wide shots, and things happen in the corners, over on yes. the side over there, or in the middle in one particular shot, and. Yes. But it's dark in the middle, so you can't really see what's going than you do. And it's it's a it's a, an effective way of building tension. Yes, because the audience is is we've seen enough film at this point that we're waiting for the cut. Right. And the longer the camera lingers, the more tension builds towards the cut and what the cut might show us. Did you and... ever see did you ever see the th- Exorcist 3. Yes, I did. I okay. haven't watched it recently, so I may not remember what you're referencing, but yes, I have. Laurel, your mom, my ex-wife, 
and I watched that film when I was in college. Ooh. And we were sitting there, wa- sitting there on the couch, watching this film. And there's a scene in the film where you're looking down a hallway at a hospital desk. And there's patient rooms lining the hallway. And for like two minutes, all you do is watch the nurse get up and check one room. And then she checks another room. And and she goes back to her desk. And she gets up and checks another room and goes back to her desk. And then she gets up and walks across the frame. And right behind her, like two feet behind her, is a guy in scrubs holding a a bone saw. Oh, bone, my God. The, the bone, bone shears. And he's, like, right behind her. And he's walking with them extended out. His arms are straight out. And he's right there. And he just walks right past, right behind her. And then it's done. And, yeah. And we all sat there and went, ah! <laughs> it's a, That's, it's, that is an effective jump steer. That's, that yeah. is not a... That is a... Uh... <laughs> we actually ended up inadvertently recreating that almost beat for beat in my stream the other day i'm streaming artwork and chris shows up behind me says something and i whip around and reveal them to the camera and everyone in the chat lost their mind because they got (laughs) accidentally jump scared and i think that's one of the reasons that people uh have come to see it as cheap is because those kinds of jump scares, the the building of the surprise, the suspense aren't initiated nearly as much as the jump in the middle of the screen, make a loud noise kind of cheap, very unearned. Well, and, and so many of the, so many of them end up looking the same. Mm-hmm. They end up having the same, um, oh, what's the one that, that I just rolled my, I rolled my eyes so far back in my head that I saw the inside of my brain. <laughs> um, oh, it was Paranormal Activity, which is uh, a terrible yeah, movie. Yeah. I, 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 my apologies to anyone who loves the Paranormal Activity films. They're awful. And my friend, my friend Dustin, and who I do Zompocalypse Now with, and my friend Paul, who I've made a lot of films with, the three of us went to watch that film together, and so it was oh, a no. writer, a writer and editor, um, a, a cinematographer and editor, and a writer all watching this film. And people did not appreciate how hard we were laughing. Oh no! Um, but we thought the film was hysterically bad. But there's the moment, the classic moment at the film, end of the film, where <sighs> she comes back up the stairs and she hurls her dead husband at the tripod and then rushes up into the screen. And mm-hmm. it's so, it's an image. It's, we, we see that kind of image happen so often in horror, this very abrupt rush, the screen, you know, Oh, it's coming to get you. And it, it, five nights at Freddy's, just everything in five nights at Freddy's. Right. I exactly. love that garbage piece of media. It's, it's not scary and I adore it. And, but it's, it's cause it's dumb. But there's just... a scene in the first episode where we're sitting here watching two people stand on either side of a door having an argument. And there's this empty door frame with blackness behind it. And we're just, it's just all you see is this square of dark. 
unless you have my unless unless you're using my screen in which I could actually see the outline of of Pretzel Jack crouching, which was almost more effective because I knew he was there the whole fucking time, and it was just when is he gonna move? It didn't. It didn't matter that I could see him because I knew the characters couldn't see them, and they had no way to prep. I am going to post a link to the Twitter feed of a film that I made several years ago, which has, I think, a good example of a jump scare in it and a bad (laughs) example of a jump scare in it. And it's... um, uh, I'm just going to post it and let people say what they want to say about it. And and I will will defend and not defend various things, (laughs) I'm sure. But... uh, I, I attempted to do things. I don't. I don't. I, well, I've worked on a lot of horror films uh, here in Kansas City. I have not made very, very very many horror films. I don't have a lot of horror stories in my head to tell. Most of the stories I want to tell are about other stories. I mean, I, I like I like doing film noir things. I like doing you know relationship stories. As much as I love horror and love working on it, I just don't have a whole lot of scary stories rattling around inside my head. Yeah, same. Uh, so, um, but I'll put it up there and, and people can let us know what they think. But I think there's an effective jump scare in there. And I think there's one that's kind of a little cheap. And <laughs> I, I knew it was a little cheap when I was doing it. And I didn't care. And I still don't kind of care. But it's, you know, you have to acknowledge that it's like, yeah, okay, that's that's kind of a cheap one. But, <laughs> but here, uh, getting back on track... Um, Especially in that first episode, there's a lot of stillness. There's a lot of letting things just slowly unfold. Um, For folks who really enjoyed the first episode uh, and were thinking they may have, and and are readers, um, House of Leaves. Oh, yeah. There's a certain sense of of Daniel, uh, I'm sorry, Mark C., Daniel S., I believe it's Daniel Lewski's. I'm probably mangling the poor guy's name. Um, <laughs> his his book, The House of Leaves, which is people discovering that there's a staircase that goes places that cannot go inside the house that they are in. Yeah. Um, that that it, it has leads into this, dark concrete. Yeah it's it's a very it's a very interesting book, and it is. It has a lot of things going on, and it, it's a, the kind of the kind of book that literally cannot be adapted into a film. Oh you no! You could not. You no, could no. not do it. It you can't try. even be adapted into. It is its own vis- uh, visual experience, but it is a purely oh, yeah. textual visual experience, and it also deals a lot with just tension in in by by creating stillness. There are pages and pages of just dense ass text that you have to wade through and then it will switch up to having a single word on the page mm-hmm. or or uh a a line of words going diagonally across from across it that you that you skim through very very quickly that kind of sense of pace from extremely slow to sudden and fast is mm-hmm. Is, is used in both these. Uh, another franchise that I think they either they were drawing from consciously or at least made reminded me of it was Silent Hill 2. 
and um the game and Heart, the game yes silent hill 2 yeah. not the movie not that awful movie <laughs> I was going to say there is, is no there's, 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 there's no. there is no good comparison that comes out of comparing anything to Silent Hill Two. No, <laughs> the, I, the movie. I have an I have an argument for why there are some cool things in Silent Hill Two, the movie that they do not they do not use effectively, but that'll stay for another day. Um, no, <laughs> the there's a scene in Silent Hill Two, the game with James Sunderland on his wife to, on his wife to find his missing town uh, <laughs> on his journey to find his missing wife Mary he comes across a building called the Hi- the Silent Hill Historical Society and he opens the door and there is a long narrow staircase that goes and goes 45 seconds of game time is spent going down this extremely narrow passageway, only being able to see about six steps in front of you. It is an eternity in game time. And it was utterly terrifying to the point that I, when playing it myself, ran back up the stairs and had to text someone who had already played the game so they could reassure me that I would be okay. (laughs) This is another point where just this fucking season reminded me of things that got me in the previous media (laughs) i do have to say to break in here and say that apparently um there was actually an attempt that may or may not still be happening where uh house of leaves there is an there is an attempt being made to adapt it for television oh my fucking god written by the author and the script, Ooh. the script is the the pilot script is online. So, Ooh. Um, we will not post a link to that, and I'll tell you why, audience. And that is, we want you to go read that book uh, because yes. it's that that's a book we can highly recommend as as an excellent, very much so. An excellent. I read novel. it in high school, and it it fucking stays with you, and it's deep. Like it's it's one of those books where you read it once and you go, oh, that was fun, and then you you poke around online a little bit and realize there was much more information to mine from oh yeah depths. It, it's a multi-read it's a multi-read book and it's it's it's, it's a visual too. experience as much as a reading experience and yeah. there's a lot yeah so it, go read it the really book. is it one of those things that you can hear an audio i would absolutely love and it's this is one of those things where it it would detract from the original story but i would still love to see the documentary that the book is technically about in its original (laughs) form Uh, i believe that that's the only that's the only way i could i could see it being adapted just because any other take to it would be so chaotic and and absolutely disjointed there's three narrative. We're fucking. We should just do an entire episode about House of Leaves. We should just do a book report. This needs to be going into a different thing. Anyway, so Pretzel Jack. <laughs> Pretzel Jack lives at the end of this of this creepy ass staircase. Um, I don't know why his abode is the only um, two door experience. Later, we find out that. Pretzel Jack is not 
just an entity that came from this house. He is connected to Jill. This is a a moment of of very this is hinted to within the cinematography that um is shows that the director and 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 writer of this season um understands their craft in that there's enough ambiguity as to whether Jill is just our main character and she is the point of view character so the camera is going to focus on her reactions during all the horse shit that happens or if she is in fact tied to the supernatural horse shit that's going on later it's established she is um and pretzel jack is a production of her mind um but he's the only guy who has two doors like she makes the door and then staircases go down and there's another door that she has to open to release jack into the world I don't know why, other than the fact that it's fucking creepy, and they knew that people had played Silent Hill 2, and they would have a a moment of PTSD seeing that fucking long-ass goddamn stairway into dark. Um, (laughs) So thank you for that. (laughs) But there's a... Jack gets a lot of moments of... um, Piss your pants scary, but there's diminishing returns. Like you mm-hmm. said, there's only so much violence that can be enacted before it, it, it loses its, um, it loses, it loses its effectiveness. And I think they definitely wanted to, they definitely realize that because every time we have, we see Jack attacking someone, it is, it is slightly different to the point that eventually he stops being, he, he stops getting his hands on people. Like, he gets thwarted um, several times. The next, like, scary moment with Jack isn't even, for me, when he is attacking someone. It is when uh, Jill goes to her old house and opens the door and shrouded in darkness is this waxy, inhuman but still recognizably Jack figure behind the tiny ass door in the back of her childhood closet. We later find out that this, this is a, um, a husk. It is not, uh, like an actual living, breathing thing. It is the leftover quote unquote dead remnants of the original pretzel Jack. Um, and I, was so freaked out the first time we saw it because it just shows it for two seconds and it cuts away and it's like what the fuck did you do did you just close it back up and just leave that empty empty ass hole in the back of that woman's closet jill (laughs) Uh uh-huh pretty much that's exactly what she did (laughs) which is very creepy (laughs) she she stole the late she stole a rug from the lady wrapped up jack's husk carefully carried it out so it wouldn't break anymore well maybe maybe she didn't he's only a torso he's only a torso so maybe she did accidentally leave his legs somewhere and because they just fell off and crumbled into dust and like oh god it was just so fucking creepy (laughs) for me his effectiveness 
really as as a scary thing as a, as an object of fear was really at the point where he stops being Jill's he stops being as much scary to Jill as he is scary to everybody else. Once she tames him, and of course there's air quotes happening here, um, he loses, and and for me, a large part of what made the whole show scary mm-hmm. ends. Because once he is an uncontrollable thing, something that is, in its own way, attempting to protect her, and mm-hmm. yet has a tendency to break whatever it it views is threatening her mm-hmm. like people because really once there's the three kills that are the first one uh where she where he kills jason mm-hmm. and then where it kills um the water therapy lady tom's tom's therapist and then where it kills jill's therapist um, clearly, clearly in this storyline, it is not healthy to be in the mental health profession, just so you know. Um, odds are good they're gonna, you're going to be killed by the personification of somebody else's fears. But, you know, it's a risk. It's a risk one takes when getting one's degree. Um, but once, once you get past those three kills, Pretzel Jack becomes less of a real threat. Because he ends up becoming, you know, and, and to some degree it's it's a logical arc in terms of the story, but it also takes a lot of the fear out of him. And so he becomes a creepy looking um, pet. Yeah, there's a, there's a specific shot where after that shot happened, I was like, he doesn't scare me anymore. He's just a guy. There is a lingering shot on on Jack's face where he is just kind of creeping and just and just looking longingly at Jill and there's some there's something about him as a character where he understands he cannot go home to her he is not wanted by her and so he must fuck off to the neighbors and crawl under the neighbor's porch uh, which was a fun scene i enjoyed that that was creepy in the implication of oh God, that's a family just trying to have a normal ass day, and they have a clown under their porch, uh, and the clown's all fucked up because um, he was hurt at this moment. Um, he, after that long shot, I was like, I have a good look at his face now. I understand what I'm looking at. The whole point of episode one, oh my god, he's so terrifying, was my brain couldn't register what I, it was seeing. Once I got a good look at his face, I was like, okay, he just has. He's he's a fucked up clown. Clowns are creepy here in the West, but it isn't. Yeah, that was, and and it was part perhaps part of the shift from him being a a a nebulous supernatural being into pet, but it it has its consequences, unfortunately. And I, as much as I enjoyed seeing the that shift as much as i enjoyed the taming scene that was almost immediately followed by the beginning of episode four where we see the taming scene involves jack trying to connect with jill just very very excitedly 
trying to reconnect with the person that matters most to his tiny little projection of fear brain. And it is... His movements are jarring, and they, they have the cracking sound effects that are put to such... That, that were used so effectively in previous scenes, the sound design in this season. is absolutely fantastic. Um, it's very jerky and, and unnatural. And in season... In, in episode four, we see the first meeting between Jill and Pretzel Jack, and he does all the same motions, and it is fluid and beautiful, and you can see how he made her happy, how how he was using it, how he was an effective way to connect with a child, and <laughs> why it was so out of place and discerning when he tried to do the same thing to a grown-up woman. And why she reacted the way she did. I liked that the story, the, 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 the writers and the editors decided to place those scenes within the order that they did. Mm -hmm. Because, again, it, going back to, to season three, that's not a chance that they would have taken. They would have made sure that we saw little baby Jill meeting Jack, so that when we saw their re their reunion, we would know immediately that he is doing the same shit that he did the first time. That kind of trust, I can I I wholly appreciate. It was unsettling. It was unnerving, but it wasn't terrifying. It was, and and in in hindsight, it's tragic in a cute way. It's tragic in a. Oh, he loves her kind of way. It wasn't tragic in a um uh life life cut short or or um it wasn't tragic in in ways that most horror uh, effective horror I think is in in the sense that there is a a loss mm. because while while Jack does get the the shit end of the stick he still he still does his best. He still does what he sets out to do. Yeah, very true. I don't know how much pain he can actually feel. Like I didn't there was there was no point in the in the season where I was I was like, "Oh, don't hurt him." Right. He doesn't, he doesn't deserve it. No, he fucking deserves it. <laughs> Make him explode in a in a in a pool. Well, it's interesting that you you have these moments where he is sympathetic in a way without losing the inherent wrongness of mm -hmm. what he is. For me, it was a fairly, I don't know why I want to say exactly jarring, but distinct, certainly, shift from when the character was something the audience was, the, the hope was that the audience would be afraid of to the point where, I mean, it really is, it's kind of, you know, Episode four, first three episodes and the second three episodes are, two, are, to some degree, two different types of storytelling. The first three is horror and an unrelenting force that you cannot stop, that you cannot understand, that is hunting down, you know, is coming into your life and destroying things around you. And yet, oddly, seems to be protective of you. That's very, very, that's a very specific, distinct kind of scare and then the second half of the season, which is um, 
you know, the kind of, you are the chosen one, here are your amazing <laughs> abilities, you know, where, where Jack becomes, Jack becomes a tool. Yes. As opposed to a threat. And, and that's fine. I mean, I'm, that, I don't, I, I still enjoyed a large part of the second half of the season, but it mm-hmm. is a definite shift in tone. And I think that Pretzel Jack is a character or as, as a force because he doesn't have so there's not a whole lot of character to him and that's that's actually how it should be in this yes. case um but the as a scary force it was very much the first three episodes and the second half is is uh, and I was I I rewatched the last episode because I just wanted to remind that I couldn't remember a couple of things and there's a scene <laughs> where he's rushing up to the house the the final house that they go into and he gets to the door and the door is shut and he stops and he's kind of bouncing yes, outside yes. the door. He's so you fucking know. cute. He's, he, he looks to Jill and he's like, do we go in? Do we go in, Jill? Do you want me to open yeah. the door, Jill? And it's adorable. He's a puppy. And but at it's that not moment, scary. But it's kind of that at that moment, it's the, it's the culmination of almost the neutering of the scary <laughs> aspects of the character because at that point it doesn't matter what he looks like he's a he's a he's a bouncing puppy outside the door and yeah and and that that to me unfortunately the 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 weakest part of this season was how much it gradually got less scary and it it kind of it kind of sours the previous parts because I'm never going to be able to rewatch this season and not think if in better circumstances he'd be a puppy right now <laughs> well yeah like I mean, his that, soul that, is a, a puppy that's a risk that they that they took and I think how well how well it works for you uh, is gonna really dictate how much that how how that reflects back on those sorts of the episodes, mm-hmm. um, and and but it, part of it is the story shifts and who the villain is. I mean, the first right. three episodes you're meant to think it's Pretzel Jack, and the second, and really by the time you've gotten into the, the fourth, fifth, and sixth, you're starting to realize, or at least you should be starting to realize, because I, I twigged like the first time I saw him. Uh huh. I mean, Ian is. I hate to say it, but Ian is like, here's obvious villain. (laughs) (laughs) You should find this actor creepy. Look at how creepy this actor is. I think uh, looking at the uh, audio position at the bottom of my audacity window, we are reaching nearly an hour. Should we be smart and say we will come back next week with the conclusion of our discussion (laughs) and... Centering around Ian and episodes four through six of the Dream Door. That's probably a good idea. I have been <laughs> clearly. If you're listening to our show, you've been noticing I've been doing introductions, talking about how hey, we we split this into two episodes. So that's probably a good idea to say hey, we're going to split this into two episodes. <laughs> As always, we appreciate you listening to the show. You can find us on Twitter and iTunes and podcast.com and wherever you are listening to us if you could leave us a comment or share the show or let other folks know about us that would all be greatly appreciated 
We'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Family Movie Nightmares, produced by Nikki Cave and Timothy Harvey for Just Some Guy Productions. All rights reserved.